It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Political Party. This episode features the former Chancellor, former Foreign Secretary and former many things, Philip Hammond. And this is a real surprise because Philip, when he was on telly, uh, and by which I mean as a politician, when he was in the House of Commons, when he was dispatching his duties at the highest level of British politics, always a very professional man. And I think you didn't always get a huge sense about his personality, but he's really funny, got a great dry sense of humour and... This is a real insight into the different motivations of politicians because they don't, they're not all driven by exactly the same thing. And this is really candid about why he's a conservative. But it's also his interactions with the Tory party. He doesn't come necessarily from a classic high-level Tory background. And he just has a, a relaxed manner in the right way. He's obviously has a real respect for people who value public office. And when he talks about Boris Johnson and Liz Truss in this, it's fantastic, and about Theresa May. Um, but it's also just a, a, an approach to politics uh, and an ethos rather than anything ideological, really. And he's quite, well, I won't ruin anything, but he, he's a great storyteller, really funny from the outset. And um, th- this is just such a refreshing experience because you, you ju- he's just being totally open and honest. And it's really, it just makes you realise that sometimes, now obviously, Given you know you know where I stand on these things, I I'm broadly supportive of people that go into politics and think that on the whole they are uh, well-meaning and are trying to change the world for the better. But e- even with that philosophy, you don't always get a sense of what people are really really like. And I think this is uh, th- this may take some of you by surprise because um, it's very funny, it's very relaxed, uh, but also it reinforces the things that you would expect from Philip Hammond that he is professional. He does care about public service. He cares about conduct in office. And and all those things make for this um, a, a really good, fun interview. And of course, he got elected on the 1st of May 1997 So and, and was basically thrust onto the front bench, it sounds like, within a matter of days. So for, from the first day of Tony Blair being prime minister until very recently, he'd really only served on the front bench, and that gives him a unique perspective on what's happened to the Conservative Party and what's happened to British politics over the last few years. Now, I can announce some future guests. So the show is now basically booked up until um, mid-October. Every guest I can now reveal. So these are uh, this is a phenomenal lineup. On Monday the 19th of June, my next guest is Margaret Beckett, another former Foreign Secretary, the first woman to lead the Labour Party. Now, we will talk about that. Obviously, Labour's never elected a female leader of the Labour Party, but Margaret uh, was leader after John Smith died. She stood in that 1994 leadership contest. And just as when Michael Heseltine or Neil Kinnock have been on the show, Margaret Beckett is a very, very rare thing in British politics because she is still absolutely, completely involved uh, and, and active in Parliament, but her career stretches back into different eras 
that a lot of modern politicians weren't even alive. So th this is you know, th those ones when you're really, really reaching back beyond Blair, beyond Smith, beyond Kinnock to um, Wilson, you know, and, and just a different period of Labour politics and of British politics. So that will be a real treat. Monday, the 19th of June. On Monday, the 3rd of July, my guest is the phenomenal comedian and political activist, Joe Lysett. On Monday, the 17th of July, I can now reveal my guest will be Mari Black, the deputy leader of the SNP in Westminster. Of course, Mari's maiden speech um, in 2015 went beyond viral. It catapulted her to a global audience, and she is known around the world, really, for her distinctive and passionate style. And, of course, so much has happened to her in the last few years. She's now deputy leader of the SNP at Westminster. She brings a different style to that, um, and she brings a different tone and, and a different approach. Um, and uh, I, I think a lot of people are absolutely fascinated by it. So that will be brilliant. Monday, the 17th of July. On Monday, the 18th of September, my guest, and I've wanted to book him for ages, and I've, I don't know why I've held, I've held off in a way just because... I, it was such a treat. The thought of interviewing him was so um, fascinating that in a way I didn't want to just like have it over with. My guest is Dan Jarvis on Monday the 18th of September. Now, Dan, as you may know, is uh, a Labour MP. He is also uh, one of Labour's northern mayors and, of course, served. And um, we talked about him with, with Tom Tugendhat and with, with some of the other um, guests on the show that have served in the military. He served in, in Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, and his book... Um, about his time in the armed forces and then becoming a politician is absolutely incredible. His life story is unlike anything else I have ever read. Uh, and of course, for, you know, and he's still absolutely um, seen as a potential future prime minister. And, and he's a Forest fan as well. And then on Monday, the 2nd of October, my guest is lead singer of the punk band Sleaford Mods, Jason Williamson. Now, if you've not listened to the Sleaford Mods, listen to them. Their new album, UK Grim, is brilliant. And they are really funny, really catchy, but really satirical. And they've done a lot of work with Cold War Steve, the, the brilliant online satirist, the, the sort of visual pictures. And he's done some of their music videos. Jason is a phenomenal individual, really passionate and with real... Um, with a real fire inside him, uh, but very thoughtful as well, and obviously blessed with this ability to write incredible lyrics about the state the country's in. So that will be a very different evening. But the next five shows at the Duchess Theatre, Margaret Beckett on the 19th of June, Joe Lysett on the 3rd of July, Mari Black on the 17th of July, Dan Jarvis on the 18th of September, Jason Williamson on the 2nd of October. So you can uh, get tickets to all those by clicking on the link uh, in the blurb. So I shall um, shut up for now. And of course, as always, at the start of uh, a Duchess Theatre show, a bit of stand-up about the fortnight in politics. And I'm sure uh, you were all glued to Sky News uh, this afternoon to watch Rishi Sunak make his uh, press conference uh, down at the White Cliffs of Dover about stopping the boats. And uh, he's got a, a remarkable amnesia for um, some of the remits of his job and, and a, a lot of political sense. He starts off this speech about stopping people crossing the channel illegally. And this, his top line, he goes, the amount of people entering the UK illegally has quadrupled in the last two years. You're like, I wonder who's been Prime Minister or Chancellor for 90% of that time. But, and he's so chirpy about it. Too many people are coming into this country illegally. And it's my party that's fucked it. Where do you go from a start? He's the least political Prime Minister we've ever had. And then he says, some people just think that this amount of people entering the country illegally is just a factor of 21st century life. Do they?
I've never heard anyone, you know when people moan about modern life? We've got Wi-Fi that doesn't work, AI taking all our jobs, line bikes clogging up the pavement, the amount of people trying to get into the country on small boats quadrupling in the last two years. And then he says, and him and Keir Starmer have started doing this, they've, they've picked this form of verbal punctuation that is it bizarrely irritating and very dating us. But in the last few months, crossings on the channel are down 20%. That's right, 20%. I mean, is this a radio advert? Three-piece suites down 10%. Designer handbags down 10%. Illegal border crossings down 20%. That's all at Bista Village, just off junction nine of the M40. So with, that's right, like, mate, I'm not gonna be any more impressed if you just repeat the stat for me. And then he goes, he's so weird, he's all over the place, because he's sort of chirpy, but what he's saying is actually sort of chillingly cold when you think about it. But one point he goes, I will not rest until we stop the boats. You're like, mate, you're not gladiator. <laughs> I will stop the boats in this life or the next. <laughs> and then he says, my God, he says, um, he, he, well, some of the phrases are just very odd. So this whole thing now is they're asking people, um, migrants who enter the country, to share hotel rooms. And he goes, by asking people to share hotel rooms where it's appropriate, we found an additional 11,500 spaces. Sounds more like he's trying to organise the world's biggest stag do. <laughs> We've asked Gary and Mick to share at the Premier Inn and they're happy to do so. Then we're going to deport them to Rwanda. Lance, Lance, Lance. <laughs> And then he actually goes further than that. He says, people who've come here illegally, claiming sanctuary from death, torture or persecution, you should be willing to share a hotel room in central London. <laughs> You're like, mate, why have you written it and said it like that? And why specifically central London? That really stuck in my head. More than reasonable to ask people to share a hotel in central London. No, not south London. We're not animals. No, no, no. We're... <laughs> Of course not East London, no, 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 that would be deeply illiberal. But uh, in central London, we think it's more than acceptable to ask people to do that. Uh, he takes some questions, and one of the guys from the Daily Mail, usually journalists at these things actually are terrible at asking questions. They waffle, they sort of, oh yes, um, Stephen, whatever, from the Guardian. Uh, Prime Minister, you said um, two years ago, no, three years ago, that um, your government, and it's stuff like that. The guy from the Daily Mail literally gets across the ground in the least amount of syllables. He goes, um, Ryan, Daily Mail, these two new barges, where are they going to be, please? <laughs> I mean, literally, where are they? I need to go there now. <laughs> I need to check this site out. It's really funny the way he does it. And, uh, did he say barges? I'm like, what the fuck is this policy? A barge? Not a ferry, a barge. I say to migrants, if you're fleeing death and persecution and torture, it's more than acceptable to spend your summer pootling around the canals of Norfolk. <laughs> Rishi, of course, has been touring the TV studios selling this policy and in an exquisite piece of serendipity uh, goes on this morning, uh, live. He says to Alison Evan, he goes, look, when I'm out in cafes and restaurants, you know, all people want to talk to me about is illegal immigration. Like, where the fuck do you eat? <laughs> what on earth? Is that all people want to talk to you about? How tragic. Was your dinner okay? Yeah, that's okay. It's just 60 quid. Yeah, just tap the card on the side and bring down illegal immigration, please. Yeah. <laughs> sort of restaurants, you go, and then you look, the people, most people I talk to actually agree with our policies. Yeah, because the only people you talk to are Suella Braverman and Lee Anderson, mate. <laughs> and then he goes, they, they start talking about um, 
Oh, this is it. This was the funniest bit. I actually can't believe this hasn't had more coverage. Alison Hammond says to him, is it true uh, you like Jilly Cooper novels? Right? The erotic fiction for, uh, uh, let's be fair, older ladies, right? And uh, he goes, yeah, yeah, I do. Uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know how that's gone out. Well, because you briefed it ahead because you thought it made you look interesting. Not, not, no one's leaked that. Your team have gone, actually, he likes reading soft porn, so ask him about that. And it's so, he then lists off a whole load. She goes, do you really like him? Yeah, yeah, sure, you know, Riders, Rivals, Polo, The Man Who Made Husbands, Jealous, Passion Article, you're like, mate, this is too much now. <laughs> it's weird, because it's not like any other form of fiction. He's basically saying, I like reading erotic fiction for ladies, and I think it's good. But this is so, because he's basically saying, I like to get aroused when I read a book. And I mean, I'm, I'm surprised Alison Hammond didn't go down that route a bit more. So do you get aroused when you're reading it? Because I do. Yeah, sometimes I get a stiffy, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> But, you know, if someone walks in, I put the book down and, you know, then I continue uh, preparing for Francis's questions. But um, it's so weird to think of your... Po in the same way that you don't want to think about your parents getting aroused. I think it's the same for politicians. We don't want to imagine... No, with Boris, we were forced to imagine him in that way all the time. But I don't think I need to know that Rishi Sunak likes reading erotic fiction. I don't want to know how Keir Starmer gets aroused. I mean, obviously, in the interest of balance, I'm going to have to ask him next time he's on. Well, look... It, uh, in the good old days, it was Channel 5 late at night, but look, to be honest, Alison, what, what makes me aroused now is giving some hope to our most marginalised community. <laughs> Thank you very much, everyone. Thank you very much. Oh, very, very kind. What a wonderful crowd. We have an exceptional guest this evening. Um, I've obviously had various uh, Conservatives on the show and I've been trying to get tonight's guest for a while because he has held some of the biggest jobs in British politics and not only that, has been a leading frontbench member of the Conservative Party almost from day one. He got elected on the 1st of May 1997 and he served in the cabinets or in junior ministerial positions of every Tory leader up to Boris Johnson when he resigned and refused to serve. Uh, under his leadership. Uh, he's someone who was at the heart of the Brexit negotiations and all the things that were happening in Parliament at the time. He's had some of the biggest jobs in the Tory party, some of the biggest jobs in British politics, including Chancellor. Please raise the roof for Philip Hammond! I remember. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So, um, do you read Jilly Cooper novels? <laughs> Not that I'm admitting to. <laughs> is that, is that the, you know, well, I don't know if you saw the interview, but now you're aware that Rishi Sunak reads them. Is that the sort of thing that uh, politicians should talk about, or am I, am I being sort of overly comedic about the whole thing? Yeah, I think, I mean, my guess is that Rishi's got quite a carefully crafted view of himself that he wants to put across. And he wants to come across as an ordinary, decent person, but with a, a, bit, of, a bit of range to him, you know, not... not, not <laughs> look, look, I mean, look, when you think about it, in some ways he's got the hardest job in the world, in other ways he's got the easiest job in the world. He's just got to not be Liz Truss or <laughs> Boris Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine Rishi's the sort of guy you get on with. Yeah, nice guy. And have you given him any advice since he became Prime Minister? Oh, that would be telling. So that's a yes. So what was the advice? <laughs> no, not since he became Prime Minister, no. I used to talk to him when he was Chancellor, as a former Chancellor, but I wouldn't uh, 
presume to give advice to a Prime Minister. And obviously you were uh, at the Treasury for a while. Was he ever there at the same time? No, we didn't overlap. Um, he, he became, uh, he went into the Treasury when I stood down. Liz Truss was my Chief Secretary. And how was that? <laughs> Interesting. Um, she built up quite a resentment against me over the time that we were working together, but for some reason projected it onto Tom Scholar, my permanent secretary, and fired him as soon as she was able to. So, um, I mean, obviously, you know, you, you were senior to her, so can you take the credit for the Trust Weeks? Did you teach her everything she knows? <laughs> No, we used to have a little routine called, uh, um, you know, one-to-one, where she would come in to my nice little office in number 11 Downing Street with her piece of paper, and she'd sit down and she'd, she'd have the good ideas for the month, because we only used to do it once a month. Um, good ideas for the month, and she'd say, I think we should do... I can't do the impersonations like you, but I understand you do a very good Liz Truss. I'll be, I'll be looking forward to that in a minute. But she'd say, you know, I think we should do so-and-so, so-and-so, and I'd say, mm, no, I don't think so. We won't do that. And, uh, she, you know, she, she was generally thoroughly pissed off with the way she didn't feel she got the respect she deserved um, from me. She had her own um, economic philosophy, and I would be... Uh, I'll say it again. She had her own economic <laughs> philosophy. And I would be astonished if she's changed it one millimetre since she was in power. The, as I understand it, Liz Truss's view now is that the blob, people like me, the establishment, the civil service, the Bank of England, got to it before they had a chance to prove that it was our only chance to break out from the straitjacket we've imprisoned ourselves in. That's how she thinks of the, of the situation. And was she saying stuff like that back when she was Chief Secretary? Uh, she, she didn't put it as radically, but yes, essentially she was very close to the Institute of Economic Affairs to... And, and, and this, I mean, let's face it, John Redwood has been saying this for years. All you have to do is cut taxes, everything else takes care of itself. Well, if it was that easy, everybody would have done that years ago because you'd be hugely popular and hugely economically successful. But unfortunately, it doesn't work. Uh, like that, and that's that's at the heart of um, Liz Truss's policy agenda. Was actually very similar to Jeremy Corbyn's. Jeremy Corbyn, John McDonnell, will borrow loads of money and will just spend it. Liz Truss and Quasi Quarting's agenda will borrow loads of money and will just give it away to people. End result, the same: too much borrowing, too much debt, and n not the economic consequences that you would uh, hope for. So, when you're Chancellor and you've got a, a senior minister in your department, like Liz Truss, whose star is kind of on the rise and she's got a bit of a reputation. Are you horrified in a way? Do you think, oh my God, we cannot let that person ever take charge? At that point, did you ever think it was even possible that she might one day become Prime Minister? Uh, no, I didn't think that, ever. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm still kind of pinching myself. I never thought that would happen. But um, I did regard her as quite high risk. And you may, you, you may remember, well, you know, right? Yeah. Um, you, you remember that she was ahead of the curve, of, of the cabinet curve anyway, on use of social media. You've got to give her that. She was mm. first out of the traps in really using social media. And she built up um, quite a position on social media, which she used ruthlessly, but it made her 
very uncomfortable to work with because she used to go straight out on social media with anything she got. So, you know, we had to keep her well away from anything important, you know, locked doors, not in front of the children type of thing. <laughs> and it, was she unusual in that regard or has that been a, a growing trend amongst some colleagues in the social media age? Yeah, well, it's been a growing trend amongst some colleagues, um, like Michael Gove. Not to name, to name no names, but... So he was the same, what, in that he would leak to anywhere or in his use of social media? Well, social media and, um, in actually, in Michael Gove's case, he was much more plugged into journalists, probably like yourself, you know. Um, you know once, once in the trade, always in the trade, right? So I've got a view about British politics that actually there's a case which should at least be considered for not allowing people who've been journalists to become holders of public office because they cannot resist pushing information to the dark side. Boris Johnson did it, Michael Gove did it, no doubt others. And when, I mean, you're a senior member of the Conservative Party, at this point you are Chancellor, and you can kind of, I, I guess in some ways, once Britain had voted to leave and, and the party is tearing itself to shreds in office, and you're in a senior cabinet position in the way that you were, you could probably see a number of icebergs. That could have gone either way. What was your, and what is your sense of, uh, well, I guess it's different now, Rishi Zona. At that point, you must have feared for the, not just the health of the country, but for the party itself, you must have really feared for the direction it was going to take. Well, I certainly feared for the, for the future of the country after the referendum decision, because um, you know, and I've, I've, I don't think I've ever suggested that you know, we're going to end up shipwrecked and impoverished. But before we took that decision, everything was going our way. And that, that's the point for me. You know, we, we were punching, to use a hackneyed old phrase, punching well above our weight. We were one of the most significant influences in the European Union. We had a very strong relationship with the US, which was in large part due to our position within the European Union. We were widely respected uh, throughout the world. And the things that got us that respect were the things which sound faintly laughable um, looking at what's happened since, but the stability of our political institutions, the reliable boringness of what it is to be British, you know, the grown-up nature of our politics, all of which now, you know, reputations lie in tatters. And as everybody in this room knows, you know, you build a reputation painstakingly over years, decades, and then you lose it like that if you get it wrong. So, yeah, I was very concerned, and we spent a lot of time in the early months after Brexit just trying to reassure international stakeholders, Japanese business partners, political allies around the world, that Britain would still be relevant, that we could bounce back from this. And the other thing you've got to remember, which people tend to forget now, is that in July 2016, the country voted for Brexit, but nobody knew what Brexit was, because it hadn't been defined. Um, it, had, it had remained deliberately undefined, and there was still a chance at that stage to steer it into something which was going to be much less damaging for the UK economy. But unfortunately, Theresa May decided to define it in that party conference speech in October 2016, in the hardest possible form, and then spent the next three years trying to row backwards from that position. And in that period, I remember, I mean, you must remember this, but you might not remember that I was there, was... <laughs> of course I do. That sounds like... It's not going in the direction I think some of the mucky people are thinking it is. But there was... In, when Boris Johnson 
uh, stand to the leadership of the Tory party. The One Nation Tory caucus held a hustings in committee room 19 of the House of Commons and Nicky Morgan asked me if I'd host it. And the one I did was Dominic Raab, Michael Gove, Matt Hancock and Jeremy Hunt. I remember sitting at the top table next to Nicholas Soames and Amber Rudd. I remember looking down, it's, sort of, it's like a mini House of Commons, two sets of benches face each other. I remember you sitting right near the front, maybe a couple of rows back, taking notes. And to this day, you know, it's just odd you remember certain things in your life. I remember banging my head on a radiator when I was about two. I just, I don't know what... I remember, That's the explanation. <laughs> I regularly think about the way you looked at Dominic Raab. <laughs> Did never, I look frightened? It was, you just sort of stared at him in disbelief. And I think... I don't know if you remember that moment, but I think he tried to return your gaze and then basically bottled it. <laughs> I don't know if that's as vivid a memory for you as it is. I remember, I remember Andrea Leadsom um, regaling the assembled Parliamentary Conservative Party with um, the news that all we need to do to succeed is focus on um, pre-birth infants and their well-being, and then the rest of it will all come together. And that, as far as I know, she hasn't changed her view on that to, to, today. That was a highlight. Um, but it was, it was the intensity in that room of realising, obviously from the outside we see it through the media, but in that room, what really struck me was how, firstly, on Michael Gove, just how sort of dazzling he is, and that he's got sharp wits, and, yes. and you can see he, um, Jeremy Hunt was very, very reasonable, Matt Hancock was very, very reasonable, um, and Gove was kind of dazzling in his, in his speed, Dominic Raab just kind of rehashed all this stuff from the Vote Leave campaign. It's a room of Remainer Tories. You know, when you're at school, you're told, tell your message to your audience. Yep. Tell your CV to whatever job you're going for, whatever room you're speaking. He basically made zero effort to even engage with the room <laughs> there. And I, I just, I'd never seen anything like it. At that level, I was stupefied. I remember just the way you looked at him. I, mean, I don't know if in that moment or during <laughs> that campaign, you were horrified at what was happening to the party that you'd served for so long. Yeah, well, I, I mean, obviously, none of us quite knew what was going to happen next. So Cameron had stood down. Um, obviously, uh, there had to be a serious chance that Boris Johnson would uh, become prime minister, which was going to be the end of my political career. Mind you, this was one of several ends of my political <laughs> career that I prepared for, um, and, it, and it didn't happen. Um, but that was, I think, probably uppermost in my mind that, you know, it's probably going to go to Boris and that means I'm probably looking for something else to do. And was that because uh, you and he, you know, effectively on different wings of the party and in terms of, you know, have different attitudes to public office or had he offered you a job that you'd have liked, would you have taken it? No, I wouldn't have served under Boris Johnson. Um, it was less about being on different wings of the party because I don't think... Boris is interested in the party or wings. Boris is interested in Boris. Boris is on the Boris wing of every party. Um, it's, it's more about attitude to public office. Um, you know, you can, you can criticise people. There are politicians that you can be critical of. But across the party divide, the most important difference to me is between people who take their office seriously, who are doing what they think is right for the country. You might think that they're profoundly wrong, but if they're sincere you can have a certain amount of respect for them. I've got a certain amount of respect for Jeremy Corbyn, who I know reasonably well, because I know that, although I profoundly disagree with him, he believes in the stuff he's talking about. Boris Johnson didn't believe in any of the stuff he was talking about. It was purely uh, an agenda of convenience for him. 
But other people um, will have said similar things around that time, but when offered a decent job, would have taken it. But for you, it was absolutely a red line. I wasn't going to work for Boris Johnson, but to be honest, I wasn't going to get that choice. <laughs> <laughs> and had you and he had any run-ins over the years? Yes, plenty. And are any of them particularly memorable? Uh, it's just an ongoing rumbling. We're two very different people. Um, you know, uh, Boris, Boris is all show and no substance. I like to think I'm substance without show. And <laughs> Boris really didn't appreciate that at all. And he didn't like being told he was stupid or, or wrong about anything. <laughs> it's funny that. I find that with people sometimes. <laughs> How often would you tell him he was stupid or not? Uh, only in private. Only ever in private. <laughs> but we had, we, had quite a few, we had quite a few discussions um, during the referendum, in the run-up to the referendum uh, campaign. Quite a few sort of attempts to find some common ground, and we failed. And were these... Um, Even over dinner. I remember over dinner. Okay, so you would, this was, these weren't just passing moments in corridors. These were, no, no, these were, were organised attempts to try and patch up some ground between us, but they failed. Okay, so... Um, and they went on failing. But where did you go for dinner? Uh, somewhere in Parliament, I think, can't remember. Okay, so you're in, you're in maybe the Churchill Room or somewhere like that. I think it might have been the adjournment, but... Uh, okay, and you're saying, Boris, that, you know, whatever side we're on here, and for the sake of the party, for the sake of the country, let's, let's find a way through. And, and no, it was much more... We were... We were look, my, my position on this... Um, I, I was painted into the role of sort of extreme Europhile, like Ken Clark. I was never that. I was regarded in the party as a bit of a Eurosceptic, to be honest. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the frippery of the European Union, the flag, the anthem, the ever closer union bit, I was never a big fan of at all. But in terms of Britain's national interest, there, is, there was never a scintilla of doubt in my mind that being in the European Union and one of the three dominant powers in that European Union made us richer, it made us safer, and it made us more influential. And if you go into politics, that has got to be what you're about. Um, so that was, that was the focus for me. And it was about trying to see if there was any ground where we could share at least the aspirations and then work through a sort of mechanical process to see if we could agree that, that there was a way we could work with the European Union or that we could have a relationship with the European Union that satisfied the needs of the, the Brexiteers, but also protected our economy and our prosperity. So um, did he not engage, or did he say, oh, look, Phil, look, come on, we're so Phil, Phil, you know, it's all going to be fine now. Just, just, you know, it's all going to be fine. We don't need to worry about any of this. That was his attitude, generally. And was, is this ever like three courses, just mains? <laughs> <laughs> so you don't get very far, because I, I don't know if you've ever had an argument with Boris, but, but um, the debate with Boris is Boris tells you how he sees something, and you tell him, I fundamentally disagree with you. And he starts to tell you why he disagrees with your disagreement, and then he loses interest and just says, no, it's, it's all going to be fine. It's going to be absolutely fine. Don't worry about it. That's it. And in those meetings, would you say, look, you're being stupid. And I, I might have been a bit more diplomatic. I'd, I, I was foreign secretary at the time, so I was probably more diplomatic. And would he say, I, I think, I think in a roundabout way, you're calling me stupid. <laughs> uh, I, I, I could say I don't like it. Uh, you know, I can't give a dinner with you. Uh, you know. <laughs> insult me for God's sake. Was it like that? Yeah, we had it? a bit of that. <laughs> Definitely a bit of that. 
And would other people sort of look over and go, oh my God, they're both arguing. <laughs> I have no idea what other people were doing. But, uh, you know, look, Boris is an interesting character. Would I like to go out and have a drink with him? Yeah. Would I like to live in a country in which he was the Prime Minister? <laughs> <laughs> so when he removes the whip from you, were you surprised? To be honest, at the time, I didn't really think anything of it. We got a text from the <laughs> chief whip saying, you um, abstained on a three-line uh, whip, uh, and therefore um, you are no longer in receipt of the conservative whip. I think I was with Ken Clark and Nick Soames when I got the message. and we, the, yeah, yeah, well, not Ken, because he doesn't have a mobile phone, but you know, <laughs> Nick and I were showing him what... Uh, and it was sort of, yeah, yeah, right, okay, that's what the whips have to do, isn't it, on a, I think it was a Tuesday evening or a Wednesday evening. You know, by the weekend, it'll all have blown over. And to be honest, I didn't really treat it terribly seriously. And then it became clear that Boris was serious. I mean, this is the new style of Prime Minister, right? He had a majority of 10 in the Commons, and he decided to sack 21 of the 10. <laughs> so then couldn't make it up, <laughs> really. But for a lot of people, that would be very hurtful. They'd say, look, I'm proud to be a Conservative member of this House. You're taking away a part of my identity. It's going to be a nightmare with the local association. Were they things that occurred to you? Well, I didn't see it that way. Um, the way I saw it was, I'm confident in my own skin that I represent the mainstream of Conservative thinking, as does you know, Ken Clark, perhaps apart from a few little aspects, Nick Soames. But you know, the Conservative Party has always been a very broad church. Historically, you'd have Ken Clark and John Redwood sitting around a cabinet table quite happily together. And this attempt to make the party very narrow and factional was going to do the party no good, but it was also going to do the country uh, no good. And uh, you know, I, I said on the Today programme on Radio 4 in September that it's not about me being kicked out of the party, it's about the party deciding to leave me and, and go off in a different direction. I, I insist that I, um, I remained the true representation of what to be Conservative was, and Boris Johnson was taking his party off in a different direction. And did, did the Boris experience and then the Liz Truss experience shatter your faith to some extent in the Conservative Party? Well, I, I still think the Conservative Party can recover. Um, I guess it's very difficult to recover while in office. I think, to be honest, the current management of the party is doing the very best it can. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's demonstrating what I would call proper Tory qualities, M a management-first approach. It's about getting things done, dealing with the issues that, that matter to people, cost of living. And yeah, illegal immigration does matter to people. So you've got to do something about that. That's a different question from immigration more generally and how we deal with an ageing population and the needs of our economy. But I think you know, they are doing a, a decent job. And I think time is a great healer. And if they had another five years to the next election, it may be that more of the same uh, would solve the problem. The challenge for Jeremy Hunt and Rishi Sunak is that they've got to do this in the next 12 months. And when you assess that then, when you look at perhaps where Rishi Sunak is, for all the improvement he is on this trust, for the party and for the country, against a resurgent Labour Party. How do you see the next election going? Well, the, the Labour Party's problem, uh, Labour Party's got a couple of problems. First of all, um, it's, it's about two men thick. It's, it's, it's Keir Starmer 
and it's Rachel Reeves. And a couple of people have heard of Angela Rayner, but you know, most people won't be able to name the rest of the, uh, the Labour bench. So they're, they're well, at least does Jonathan Ashworth, Shabana, yeah, but you're, movie, you're, 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 you're a professional. West Streeting. You're, you're a professional. Um, I think that the, the Labour Party has not got the depth it would once have had. The second problem is that the left is still very strong. And as you know, there are two, there are two factions within the Labour Party. There are those that believe, Blair style, that it's all about power and you do what you need to do to be in power, because unless you're in power, you can't do anything. But there's an equally strong faction that believes that there's no point being in power if you don't have socialism, if you don't deliver socialism. And that group, which have been pretty quiet since the evisceration of Jeremy Corbyn, are not going to stay quiet if they see a real prospect of Labour coming into office. They are going to want to insist on at least some socialist policy in Keir Starmer's agenda. And that's, that's going to be a tension which is probably going to kick off over the next couple of months. Uh, it will certainly be a factor at the Labour Party conference, and it's going to run through next year. So he's got that challenge to deal with. And look, the other thing is, we live in an incredibly uncertain and unstable world. And um, it would be a very brave person that was going to predict today the outcome of an election in, I can confidently predict, um, 17 months time, the second Thursday in October 2024, um, uh, you know, anything could happen. It's, today it's about the economy, it's about the cost of living, it's about inflation. But if Mr Putin starts throwing nuclear weapons around, it's going to be a different discussion that goes on, a different debate about who we want running the country and about how we want it run. So the election is going to be in October? Yeah, October 24, yeah. I don't know whether you're kidding or not. I, I'll put some money on October 24. But why not May? How much do you want? Uh, oh, well, why, not, why not May? Because of what I've just said. That I think, um, you know, Jeremy Hunt and uh, Rishi Sunak's strategy is to let things calm down, yeah. put as much space as possible between the horrors, the nightmare of last autumn, and before that, the bumbling mess of Boris Johnson's government, and, you know, no doubt we're going to have a load more noise about how the decisions it made were also completely wrong and, you know, that didn't benefit the country. They want as much space between that and where we are at the time of an election as possible. They want inflation to fall, which it will do if given time, and they want something of a feel-good factor to recover. And the longer you go, the better. But you don't want an election in November, December, and you certainly don't want it in January at the last possible moment. So, for my money, October is the, uh, is the prime spot. So that gives them like another quarter of figures yeah. without having to do it in the dark days of winter. That's right. And October, it is getting a bit colder and darker, and the Labour Party is absolutely convinced that its vote is more susceptible to staying in when the weather's better. I don't yeah, know if you know I this. Don't, I know they do. I, um, Are they it, wrong? Well, I think it goes back to sort of the 1970s when la Labour supporters <laughs> didn't have cars in those days. <laughs> but, you know, the, uh, on the other side of the coin, um, you know, a lot of people perceive that Tory voters tend to be older. And, you know, while older people are very determined, very often, in their patterns, they're, they're also not that keen on bad weather. Postal votes. Postal votes, great thing. But, and, and what's your sort of gut instinct then? Because obviously looking at it on the surface, I can't help but think, given the election result last time, Labour need a swing that is off the scale they do. to get a majority of one. Then another part of me thinks, 
Well, if politics is volatile, and of course, um, you know, the so-called red wall went conservative last time, the so-called blue wall, you know, you've already seen people like Rosie Duffield winning um, down the road from where you grew up, and, and uh, Labour winning in places that would never even won, perhaps even in 1997. Is there now going to be a kind of Tory collapse, thanks to what Liz Truss did to people's mortgages? No, I don't, first of all, um, what happened last autumn had a negative effect on mortgages and interest rates for a very short period. But the underlying long-term trend is a global one. And there's none or almost none of that trust quateng effect left in interest rates in the UK, mortgages in the UK today. We've, we've recovered from that. The markets have moved on um, from that. So I don't think it's fair to talk about UK mortgage rates as Liz Trust mortgage rates now. They're global um, uh, mortgage rates. But, you know, Rishi and Jeremy will be hoping that the direction of news is generally positive. Lower interest rates, uh, lower inflation, the gradual return of a, of a feel-good, something of a feel-good factor as um, the prices of commodities go down, particularly energy. Um, and the longer we go, the further away the bad stuff was and the more people have a chance to recover. So I think if you're saying to me that it's very difficult to see how Labour could get a majority of one today, I think it'll be even more difficult to see how they do that in 16, 17 months' time, assuming that things go in the direction everybody expects them to go at the moment. That's the economy. But yep. there are other... Yeah, of course. Unknown right. unknowns. And one of them is, when you're effectively a full-term government and discipline has gone out of the window, Bob Stewart today, just before we came on stage, but now he's going to be prosecuted for yep. uh, racial comments he, he may have made. Um, it reminds people a little bit of the 92 to 97 major era Tory party, where basically it feels like it's just scandal after scandal after scandal. The political management of the party becomes difficult. And I guess what I'm asking is, were there ever times when you sat amongst parliamentary colleagues and worried about the morality, conduct? I mean, some of the candidates that got selected and elected last time, people said, and it obviously it happened in both parties, but you can think of some of the people that now populate the Tory benches. And some of them aren't the most charming individuals that you would require in a close election to win over perhaps middle ground swing voters? So look, I won't surprise you to hear, I've never really been a fan of populist politics. Um, it, it, you know, there, politics is about actually making hard decisions and then selling them uh, to people. Because a lot of things that need to be done for the good of the country, for the good of our own futures, are pretty tough in the short term. And a, a form of politics which simply says we always do the easy and popular thing in the short term and we worry about the long term later, which was, you know, broadly is the Boris Johnson approach to life, very high discount rate, you might say. Um, that, that is not the route to uh, successful government and, and the long term best interests of the company, country uh, and the company. So, um, so I, d I, I am concerned about populism. I'm concerned about... People, the people who are coming into politics today. But I'm not surprised, because honestly, since I came into um, frontline politics in the 1990s, um, I think the attraction of it has dramatically reduced. Yet the deal used to be, you go into politics, you lose your right to privacy, you don't earn any money, 
but you are at least a respected member of the community. <laughs> now, you lose your right to privacy, you don't earn any money, and you're universally reviled as being worse than estate agents and journalists. <laughs> and that's, you know, why would anybody do it? Why would anybody do it? Well, I guess politics attracts a variety of people, doesn't it? It attracts people that effectively, it is a vocation uh, on all sides. They're genuine, people who genuinely want the world to be a particular way, and they are advocates, they come from a variety of backgrounds, and then it does attract shoffs, people who actually aren't on top of the detail, and it just feels, and it certainly in the last few years has really attracted, and, and, and the, because of the leadership of both parties at that particular point, they allowed in people that, in, in years gone by, parliamentary selection processes would have rooted these people yes. out, but the complexion of parties changed, uh, effectively both parties were subject to entryist cabals that selected people that five years previously they never would have dreamed of. Yeah, and the, the makeup of, um, certainly in the Tory party, the makeup of people um, coming into the party as members of parliament has changed. More and more of them are local figures, local politicians who move on to the national stage. That didn't necessarily used to be the route for Tory candidates. You know, when I, I freely um, tell the story, you know, when I went to be interviewed as a candidate for my constituency, Runnymede and Weybridge, um, I didn't even know where it was. We didn't, we didn't have sat-navs sat in those days, but I had a road atlas open on the passenger seat driving out there on Saturday morning. That was perfectly normal. That was, you know, you, you were qualified to be a candidate through the party process, and then you went and you pitched. Uh, you know, I was interviewed in Cambridgeshire, in, on the south coast, in Bedfordshire, in Buckinghamshire, Surrey, and then eventually you find your perch. What we see now a lot is that um, seats tend to select from amongst a panel of local candidates, people who've grown up in the area, become local councillors or whatever. I'm not saying they're not good people, but they have different motivations and different perspectives, and it's much more difficult to glue them together into a cohesive national party because their focus and their roots are local. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At bluenile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. And just thinking about, because obviously a lot of Labour people went through this. When Corbyn was leader, even it didn't weren't necessarily voted for Boris Johnson's Conservatives at that election, but deep down they'd have thought, we cannot have Corbyn as Prime Minister, I can't vote for it. If it means Boris Johnson wins, so be it. I can't vote for him either. When you saw Boris Johnson's Prime Minister and Liz Truss, had there been, had Liz Truss gone to the electorate, could you vote a Conservative 
Would you even have considered voting for Keir Starmer to be Prime Minister instead of him? No, I would never vote against the Conservative Party. It's too deep in the, um, in the veins. You know, I, I could have stood as an independent candidate in the 2019 election, but that would have meant attacking a Conservative candidate nominated for my seat, and I decided that wasn't something I wanted to do. But I certainly wouldn't vote for um, a, a Prime Minister that I didn't think would be a, a, a decent Prime Minister, you know, a, a someone who had the best interests of the country at heart. And could you, let's say Keir Starmer becomes Prime Minister, would you feel comfortable in Starmer's Britain? So at the moment, Keir Starmer's on a charm offensive for the middle ground, designed to make people who had enough of Boris Johnson and Liz Truss feel comfortable with him. But as I say, we haven't yet started on the process of the left filling in its demands. And quite a few of the things that, that Keir Starmer's been talking about, Rachel Reeves has been talking about, are sufficiently ambiguous that they could yet become problematic. I don't have any problem with Keir Starmer as a person. Um, I respect him as a person. I think he's a decent guy. I think, you know, broadly speaking, you can take him at face value. Um, but there's a long way to go between now and Labour's manifesto for the next election. And he's got a very difficult balancing act to do because, you know, the, 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 although he's been trying to curb it, the momentum organisation is still there and the hard left still has a strong position in parts of the Labour Party in London, for example. And what Labour... Because you sort of mentioned earlier having a level of respect for Corbyn... You're supposed to be a comedian, because nobody's laughed for ages. Oh, well, no, but, <laughs> well, I mean... It, Can you say something funny? Because otherwise they'll think... <laughs> Otherwise, they'll think I'm supposed to do it. No, and that's no, no, really not my job. It's about light and shade. This is also a, a show that celebrates the detail of politics, and uh, it's fascinating because I just wonder if no guest has ever said that before. But um, I just, just wonder if there were Labour MPs that you were maybe not friends with, but who are the Labour MPs that you get on with? I get on with you know quite a few people in Parliament. Um, uh, you know, you mentioned West Streeting just now. I've I've got a good off-camera relationship with West Streeting. doesn't stop him going for me round the throat every time I was before a, um, a select committee. Um, but he's a nice guy, smart guy. I like the way he thinks. And I like the way um, he's been the only politician, really, I think, on either side, that's been prepared to admit that there has to be a debate about how we fund the NHS and how we run the NHS because the NHS is by far the largest bit of the government now, and it's not going to get any smaller anytime soon. So somebody has to ask these questions. And it's um, refreshing to me that somebody from left of centre is prepared to say that, because in a sense that gives permission for a debate to happen, that you know, if somebody on the Tory side had said it, that wouldn't have given permission. As either a cabinet minister, a junior minister, a uh, shadow cabinet minister or a front bench spokesman. You served under William Hague, Ian Duncan Smith, Michael Howard, David Cameron and Theresa May. Yep. Of those five Tory leaders, who did you prefer? Who was the best to work for? Uh, I mean, obviously, uh, it's very different in opposition than it is in uh, government. And the gap between the leader and the team is much smaller when you're in opposition. It's, it's much more a sense of a team. You know, the, the leader of the party isn't the prime minister and isn't isolated with a huge staff in 
Downing Street. So the relationship is um, is somewhat different. Um, you know, I always enjoyed working with William Hague. Um, you know, he gave me my first foot up on the ladder. Mind you, as I think you said, um, it wasn't that. It's was a little bit. I was like in 1997 when I came in, like the First World <laughs> War. You know. Um, I came in just as everyone else was going out, you know, a sort of young subaltern at the front, and all these senior officers were dead, basically. So, you know, they looked around, and if you, could, if you were still moving, they said, ah, you, you know, you're on the front bench now. And I remember getting the call, you know, it was like on a Tuesday evening, and I got the call saying, um, and I'd only been, I hadn't even been in Parliament a year, I'd been there about seven months, eight months. They said, um, we're going to make you a junior health spokesman. Oh, right, are you? I, um, do you know anything about health? Well, no, no, oh, don't worry. Um, you, you're going tomorrow morning, you're on the eight o'clock train to the northeast. There's a tour already organised and you're going to do it. Um, and off I went. And that's pretty much how it's been ever since, right the way through opposition and government. They say, when they made me defence secretary, um, I remember we were, we were fighting in Afghanistan, um, I was made Defence Secretary on the Friday afternoon when Liam Fox resigned, and on the Saturday morning, my induction, they said to me, oh, by the way, on Tuesday, you're making the, the quarterly statement to the House on the state of affairs in Afghanistan. Um, that alternates between the Foreign Secretary and the Defence Secretary, and it's the Defence Secretary's turn. I said, well, I've never been there. They said, oh, don't worry, don't worry, we'll brief you on Sunday, and you'll be fine. And that's how a lot of it works, you know. And after that briefing, did you feel more comfortable, more qualified? Yeah, but you're always vulnerable, aren't you, when you stand up at the dispatch box and you start spouting about the, um, uh, you know, the line of control in Northern Helmand, that someone will stand up and say, uh, when were you last there, exactly? You know, because I've never been there in my life. Um, only checked the map on Saturday. It's just a little bit, just a little bit vulnerable. But I see, but I see, I see colleagues doing it all the time. You know, when, when there's a reshuffle, you, the first thing you look for if you're if you're a pro, if you're on the inside, is when's his next questions? Because if it's tomorrow, you know he's going to sweat tonight. He's really going to sweat tonight. <laughs> and did you fear re reshuffles? You strike me as someone who's actually quite zen. And if you get elevated, you're cool with it. If yeah. not, you're fine. Exactly. And as I said to you um, just now. There were a number of times when I was expecting time to be called, you know. Um, 2013, I, there was a reshuffle and I had a, a, a feeling in my bones, a bit of rumour in the press that um, I was going to get shuffled out. Okay, fine, I'd had a, three years. Um, 2015 election, of course, all of us thought we were going to get shuffled out. Um, then 2016, after the referendum, with the possibility of Boris becoming Prime Minister, or, uh, or somebody else in fact, um, and um, no slot. And then 2017, well rehearsed publicly that Theresa May was going to get rid of me if she won uh, the election with a decent thumping majority. Um, but she didn't, and, and uh, <laughs> she wasn't able to. And uh, it's quite interesting how the balance of power can shift overnight, <laughs> very subtly. Um, so yeah, there were plenty of uh, times when I thought about that, and yeah, I was quite relaxed about it. I do think um, if you go into politics, unless you want to go start raving mad, you have to have a hinterland to fall back on. You have to have something else that you've done that you know you could go back to, whether it's a profession or a 
business career or something else in your life that you would go and do. Otherwise, you do become, um, a, a, you know, a fingernails character trying to cling on at all costs, and that's not dignified. But did you ever make representations on behalf of yourself? You know, when it, when rumours were in the air, would you ever say, yeah. "Look, Prime Minister, I mean, by all means, no. get rid of me, but who else are you going to get?" Or I think I'm doing no. quite a good job, you know. I never said that. No, no. And how did your relationship with Theresa May change after that election? Then uh, the balance of power shifted because because she knew that I knew that she tried to get rid of me, and <laughs> I knew that she knew that I knew. <laughs> That she couldn't. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing had changed after that. Um, the, and the other thing I never did, and I said to Teresa at the beginning, I will never, do, I will never threaten to resign. I can't stand those people who threaten to resign every five minutes. If you're going to go, go. And if you're going to stay, stay. Um, so, so I think we had a sort of mutual understanding that we didn't quite see eye to eye on everything. Um, but she was doing, I never had the slightest doubt that Theresa was trying to do what she thought was best for the country and the party. And I didn't always agree with her, but I never doubted her motivation. Whereas with Boris, I had questions in my mind about motivation. And that to me is really important. You can disagree with someone, but you can respect them if you think their motivation is decent. When that balance of power shifts then, does, does that manifest itself in any way? Does Theresa May stop going, Philip, sorry, I meant to say the other week, that was a great presentation at Cabinet, and we should have dinner more often. No, well, occasionally, um, one or other of us said, we should have dinner more often, and the other one said, hmm, and we didn't. <laughs> and, I mean, you must possess, obviously, a level of political ambition, because... We had great, actually, we had great dinners, because we did have great dinners. Me and my wife went and had dinner with... Theresa and Philip, and Philip's a great laugh. <laughs> <laughs> I can't tell if you're being serious, though. No, Philip's a great laugh. He's great. He, he talks, he chats, he's life and soul. He is. And would, and would those dinners be um, long into the night, boozy, whiskey and cigars? Uh, no whiskey and cigars, but um, Theresa likes a glass of wine. That's one of her redeeming features, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> She likes a glass of wine. You can sit and have a drink with her and a chat. Yeah. And now that she's not Prime Minister, she's been very active in the House of Commons. You know, a lot of Prime Ministers... Yeah, and I can't understand that. I, I honestly can't understand what would motivate someone who had held the greatest office, whether it's Gordon Brown, Tony Blair, David Cameron, what would motivate you to go and sit on the back benches? And you're, you're very limited. You, you know, as Prime Minister, you've got access to everything. The, the, the most you know, secret information across all departments, you know a lot of stuff which you can never even refer to or allude to. So you're very limited. Um, you also mustn't look, as Ted Heath used to, as though you're carping at, at your successor. So you, you're quite restricted as to what you can do. Uh, I mean, obviously everybody has their own, you know, does their own thing, and Theresa obviously enjoys it, but it wouldn't work for me, and it obviously wouldn't have worked for... David Cameron, and uh, I suspect for different reasons, Boris Johnson may be leaving Parliament at the next election as well. <laughs> and, th and then, since then, have you spoken to Theresa May much? It has, uh, you know, the Johnson and the Truss experience, in a way, brought people like you and Theresa May closer together, because whatever your political differences, that emphasis on public service and, and yeah. what it's for. 
Um, I think that's right. Um, I mean, I wouldn't tell you that Theresa May and I are in regular contact, but I do see her from time to time, and it's always very cordial. But I definitely have a strong view that Theresa feels that she's um, vindicated by what happened after. Um, you know, people criticised Theresa May for you know lack of charisma. She didn't, you know, she didn't. She didn't. She wasn't more proactive in trying to pull the party back together. But having looked at what happened under perhaps a more charismatic leadership, I think quite a few people would say, actually, I'll take the one I had before. You know, I'll stick with the previous model. Um, and the irony, of course, is that Boris Johnson. Um, you know, he was on the wrong side of the argument, but he could have been on either side of the Brexit argument. Boris Johnson had much more the sort of personality to deal with that hung parliament type situation that we found ourselves in between 2017 and 2019. And Theresa had much more the personality to deal with the constant crisis management of Brexit. You know, lots of detailed stuff, scientists and civil servants with lots of data and graphs and spreadsheets. Theresa likes to do the work and understand the detail and make decisions very carefully uh, and, and in a very considered way. Boris doesn't really and, you know, Boris will never have read all that stuff. Never in a million years. I always used to say to people, Boris talks about the Northern Ireland Protocol all the time. He hasn't got a clue what it is because he never would have read it. Not a chance. And how did you feel then when he has to lead the country through COVID? I, I personally think the government um, <laughs> made some wrong decisions, um, and, and you know it, it's easy. It's easy to be overcritical because at the beginning, in a crisis, when you don't actually know the facts, it's right to be to take a precautionary approach, to to be cautious until you do know. But I think um, Boris became um, over obsessed with the adulation. Of, of being the leader in a crisis. I'm sure he saw this as his Churchill moment and he couldn't put it down. He had to keep on giving people more, handing out a bit more, supporting them a bit longer. And actually, what we should have done, as soon as it became clear that there was going to be a solution through vaccination, we should have um, started to row back to normality pretty quickly and limit the damage that we did to, you know, to so many people's lives and to so much of our industry and swathes of business and, and of course sowed the seeds for this problem we're facing today, inflation. It's, it's very convenient to pin it all on Vladimir Putin and I'm absolutely, I yield to no one in my dislike of Vladimir Putin, but the inflation that we're facing started before Putin got moving um, and if you ask somebody doing, let's say, shall we say, first year GCSE economics, what happens when you borrow 600 billion pounds and pour it into an economy while at the same time cutting the productive capacity of that economy by about six, seven percent? I think even that first year economic schoolboy student will tell you, you're going to get inflation, sir. That's what's going to happen. And why our politicians didn't recognize it, and apparently even our central banks didn't recognize it, is a continuing mystery to me. It all started during COVID. What do you make of uh, the row over the WhatsApps? I mean, I'm, my instinct, <laughs> I mean, briefly works in politics, actually, is to say that not everything written and said in private should always be released, even on something like this. I because agree. if, if pe 
People will change the advice they give or they will cease to give it if they think that at some point in the future, when the context has changed, that will be made public. Equally, people say, this cost a lot of people their lives. We have a right to know what happened at the centre of things. And I, I genuinely, depending on what time of the day it is, I, I have a, a, a sort of sway between those two views. I don't know if you have a, a, a sort of more co coherent view than I do on whether they should all be released. Well, look, I think, first of all, um, your instinct that if there is no safe space to communicate, people will not communicate, or they'll communicate in different ways. So um, everybody who has been in government since Freedom of Information whether they admit to it or not, um, will have had things that they wanted to communicate to a colleague, but decided or were advised, perhaps, not to communicate in writing, but to catch them in the lobby and have a word. Um, now, does that enhance the process of government? I don't actually think it does. Um, WhatsApp became a bit of a substitute for written communications. The danger with WhatsApp is that you cut out the private office. This is going to get very boring now, but I mean, the way um, ministerial government works is through the private office system. Everything that comes into a minister comes through his private office. Everything that goes out from a minister goes through his private office. Private offices talk to private offices, so there's a parallel network sorting out all sorts of things all the time which make the business of government work properly, agreeing agendas, resolving minor differences, narrowing down differences so that the principals can spend their time on the things that really matter, not on the things that can be resolved at official level. The first thing you do when you switch to WhatsApp, me WhatsApping Michael Gove about something he said which I don't agree with, and you know, I say, you know, Michael, I didn't agree with what you said, and if that's your policy, the Treasury's going to veto it. Um, you know, the first thing it does is cuts out his officials and my officials from that discussion, so it personalises it, perhaps raises the stakes. I don't know why I picked Michael Gove, could have been anyone, <laughs> but um, Gavin Williamson. Um, <laughs> I don't actually think I ever had him in my speed dial, to be honest. But um, uh, it, cut, it cuts officials out, and that does um, undermine the way government is meant uh, to work. But I do, I do agree, everybody in government in, faced with a difficult situation, and we've all dealt with crises, um, and we've all made decisions which were wrong. You know, do, do, we, do we send in the SAS to a hostage situation and when I dealt with the Defence Secretary in Nigeria? Perhaps we got it wrong. And you've got to be allowed to, to get it wrong sometimes, provided you do it, the process is right. You've taken all the relevant advice, you've weighed the information available, which is usually not all the information, it's a fraction of the information, and you make a decision in good faith, sometimes you'll get it wrong. Um, and I think there is a need to protect the process. Um, but I think what the Cabinet Office is doing in this WhatsApp spat is actually protecting a principle. Because what the Cabinet Office is afraid of is that there will be a precedent created that all forms of communication in all cases must be um, fully divulged. And that would be quite difficult, I think. And what do you make of what's happened with Boris Johnson's messages being passed on by effectively the legal team the government was being paid for? Is that correct? Or is he, is he right that effectively he's, he seems to think he's a victim of a stitch-up or a witch hunt? Um, I think uh, the, the, the publicly financed legal team has to be supporting the ex-office holder in defending his actions 
in office, his proper actions in office. So, you know, if I took a decision as Defence Secretary to sign off the detention of someone in Afghanistan and that someone in the future sues the British government, I, I must be uh, entitled to public funded support to defend my actions and show that they were proper. Um, what, what the government legal team, taxpayer funded, should not be doing is um, trying to act as validation for a, some kind of personal crusade or personal position taking of the, of the office holder at the time. It's got to be the actions that were done ex officio that are defended by the taxpayer. And just thinking about, uh, you know, we touched up with Theresa May with her reputation and, and things. How did you feel about your reputation and being known as Spreadsheet Phil? Was that, was that a nickname that you liked or disliked? Um, I didn't mind it, actually, at all. Uh, it wasn't meant to be flattering. Uh, I think it's, uh, it was Simon Walters, I think, um, who interviewed me for a Sunday article on, on a Thursday afternoon, or maybe it was a Friday morning, in number 11, and then said to me, so what are you going to do this weekend, Phil? Got anything planned? And I said, oh, I don't know, so I'd probably, probably look at a couple of spreadsheets or something <laughs> over the weekend. And thus it was born. And, and um, as you know, journalists are all lazy. So once a journalist, once a journalist, they knock off on Friday afternoon, you know. Once a, jur once a journalist uh, has written something, everyone else picks it up. So um, I was spreadsheet Phil, um, who is, do you know, a chartered accountant. Somebody wrote it, and then everyone else just kept rewriting it. Nobody ever bothered to check. And you're not? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> Actually, I wish I had been. But, uh, <laughs> I always thought it was a good nickname for a chance because it, it suggests detail. And yeah, rigor. exactly. It's not a bad nickname at it's all. It's not a bad nickname. No. Better than like Thick Phil or whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> not that that would have been. But do you know what I mean? Thinking of previous um, people perhaps that have held that office. Or, or what did you make of Quasi Quartang? <laughs> <laughs> well, Quasi was my PPS while I was Chancellor. So, so you did teach him everything he knew? Mm, uh, uh, not quite, but. Um, you know, Quasi is an interesting um, character. Uh, very clever, of course. V very clever. I mean, seriously, one of the cleverest people I know. Um, but Oliver Letwin was one of the cleverest people I knew as well. Um, and, and, and Quasi's a bit of a purist. Um, and I think, you know, public office requires... It definitely requires that you've got some brain power, but it doesn't require you to be a professor of something or other you know it requires you to have a bit of common sense and be a bit of a practical person as well mm -hmm. um and uh yeah, I, I, i'm disappointed <coughs> that quasi hitched his wagon quite as vigorously as he did to liz trust because i think the economic thinking was hers and he enthusiastically embraced it i think um quasi could have um could have run with another package if if it had been presented to him. Um, but to this day, as far as I'm aware, both of them take the position that if only the country had had the nerve and the stomach for it uh, and had um, just stuck with them, uh, <laughs> they would have proved the correctness of their thinking. And when you see <laughs> Liz Trust become Prime Minister, Boris Johnson become Prime Minister, office holders effectively 
you know, go, go over your head and become more senior than you and, and do what they did in the public office. Surely at some point you must have thought, I'd have been a better Prime Minister than these people, and why didn't you ever seriously put yourself in a position to become leader of the Tory party or Prime Minister? Yeah, because um, that's a good question. Um, I, you know, you. looked at Prime Ministers... <laughs> wasn't a funny question, but it was a good question. Uh, I looked at many Prime Ministers in, in action, and I think, you know, one of the key things in any walk of life is to be able to assess your own strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, you don't want to brag about your strengths, but you've got to know yourself what your strengths are. And you've also got to know what your weaknesses are. And until um, Theresa May became Prime Minister, um, I would have said that um, one of the key characteristics of Prime Ministers was their, and, and, and indeed leaders of the opposition, was their ability to perform at Prime Minister's questions. It is performance art. It's, it's nothing deeper than that. It's performance art. But Theresa actually did very well in her first, you know, up until the 2017 election. She was scoring extremely good opinion polling without ever doing that performance art of Prime Minister questions. She just batted the, batted the questions back, with, you know, dead bat. And I do remember sitting there on the bench next to Theresa thinking, Cracky, you know, I've spent all these years thinking I couldn't do this job, but I could do it if you can do it like that, you know. <laughs> um, you know, David Cameron had a good rhetorical flair, and, um, you know, obviously William Hague was brilliant at the dispatch box and so on. Um, but, uh, you know, my ambition was to be Chancellor. That's, you know, I'd, I'd been that for a, a, a long time. I remember Anne Widdicombe, um, when she was health uh, Shadow Health Secretary, and I was a junior health spokesman. I'm going to tell you a joke in a minute um, <laughs> uh, about that. I'll tell you it now, in fact. And then I'll go back and make the point. Anne Whittacombe was meant to be speaking at the Royal College of Physicians. Um, and uh, I was her junior. And at the last minute, she couldn't go. So she sent me. So I turned up at the Royal College of Physicians and was introduced by the um, president of the Royal College of Physicians, who was astonishingly enough, a physician. And he said something along the lines of, uh, we were going to have Anne Widdicombe, but we've got Philip ha Hammond, two politicians who, if I may say so, probably have about the same body weight, but arranged at the two possible anatomical <laughs> extremes. <laughs> and he said, and I'm probably the only person in the country that can say that and get away with it. I wish I'd have known that, because that's how I would have brought you on. <laughs> He's got the same anatomical weight as Anne Whittacombe. Please welcome. Wow, what an intro that was. But anyway, Anne Whittacombe, when she was health secretary and uh, I was her junior, I told her in the budget, spe budget speech when the, of the Labour government, Gordon, Gordon Brown's budget speech, that he was, he was about to cheat on the figures and used nominal figures where everybody had always used real figures. And she, I don't think she really quite knew what I was saying, but when she read in the Daily Telegraph the next day that that was exactly what he'd done, she pronounced to the world that Philip Hammond is a future Chancellor of the Exchequer because he understands all this stuff. And, um, you know, that was, that was my... That was my ambition from then on. But surely, once you become Chancellor, you are really only... You are literally next door to being Prime Minister. Did it ever cross your mind? It was a pretty horrific role when <laughs> Theresa held it, to be honest. 
to be prime minister without a majority, trying to pull together the factions of a warring party, honestly, I'd have to say that wouldn't have been my skill set. Um, uh, you know, it's it, it, you, you've got, and it wasn't it wasn't really Theresa's skill set, to be honest. Um, you've got to be a people person, and um, I would say neither of us are probably mostly defined as people uh, people people, if you can have people people. Um, and you know, it was just a it was just a mountain of pain actually, and I watched Theresa trying to navigate it, and I honestly don't think that I ever really aspired to take over her job, and I wouldn't have put myself forward, and obviously in the circumstances in which she left, um, it wouldn't have been appropriate at all. It was clear that we were coming to the end of that period in politics, and, and um, someone else um, had to try and do it a different way. And how did you find... Um the different, maybe not even factions, but attitudes to class that senior levels of the Tory party. Because some attitudes to class, yeah, to backgrounds. <laughs> that the, the yeah. well, apparently Michael. No, I think that's felt. a question from twenty years back. Yeah, that's that's not. I, don't, I honestly don't think that was really a, an issue in the Tory party when I was in government. But David Cameron and George Osborne were never, you know, never sort of. Not elitist towards you, but th there was never a sense that unless you'd gone to certain schools, there was a glass ceiling on how far you could rise. No, I don't think so. I, I, I never felt that, um, to be honest. Not during the period we were in government, no. And uh, you went to school, not just in Essex. Uh, you were in the same class as Richard Maidley. Yeah, <laughs> briefly. What was he like? I mean, what was he like? He was a SWAT. Was he? Yeah, he was a SWAT. He only, he only joined us for the sixth form. Uh, no, the fifth form, for, to do his O-levels. I'll tell you the story about Richard Maidley. He was quite, he was quite a bright kid. By the way, he had, I finally got an apology out of him, because he once wrote that he, he described me as a goth when I was uh, 16. And he once wrote that I, I went around in a leather trench coat with a folded copy of The Guardian under my arm. And I badgered him for years about this, and he eventually apologised and conceded that it was the Daily Telegraph, not the Guardian. Um, but I'll tell you, the Richard Maidley story is really um, fascinating because uh, he, he, was, he was set to stay on and do A-levels. Um, and during the summer after we'd done our GCSEs, O-levels in those days, the long summer, he went to work as a cub reporter, um, you know, intern, yeah. on the local paper, the Brentwood Gazette. And nothing ever happened in Brentwood, literally nothing ever happened in Brentwood, um, until um, TOWIE, uh, which was set in Brentwood. But in those days, nothing happened in Brentwood. And then as soon as Maidley gets there, of course, this is Maidley, uh, always has been. As soon as Maidley gets there, and all the senior reporters have gone away for the summer, so there's literally just him sitting on the so-called news desk, there's a murder <laughs> on the common. And Richard Maidley's not only reporting it for the Brentwood Gazette, he's stringing it to all the national newspapers. So overnight, Richard Maidley's a, a national hero. You know. Anyway, he never came back to school. He decided that journalism was his thing, and he never came back to do his A-levels and went off, and you know, the rest is history. So... <laughs> the murder was real? The murder was real. Well, he might have done it for all I know. But <laughs> the, the murder, I think, was real. At school. I mean, what? if he did do it, I'd never thought of that before. <laughs> <laughs> but if he did do it, you know, actually, my, it's gone up in my estimation. 
quite a lot. That was, that was a smart move. <laughs> Did you chat to each other at school at all? Yeah. Yeah, we were reasonably friendly, yeah. And was he broadly as he is now? He was a little bit aloof because he'd come from a different school to join us in the fifth form. I think he'd been in a boarding school and then he came um, to join us in the fifth form in, the, in what was then called a comprehensive school, but it had, it had been a, uh, a technical high school, uh, a white hot heat of Harold Wilson technical revolution uh, entity that, that then became a comprehensive. And at that point, did you ever think, oh, I might be an MP one day? Were you political at no. that age? No, what? and at that age, at that stage, I probably wouldn't have thought people like me from that kind of school and that kind of background became MPs. But then I went to Oxford, and that changed my perspective on the world quite a lot. And that's where you... Did you realise you were a Conservative before that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what sort of Conservative were you as a, as a young goth? Uh, <laughs> I wasn't, of course. This was, this was Richard Mabey's mis mistake. Um, uh, but so, because um, we're, we're talking about a world in which we had Labour governments, um, primarily, um, <laughs> and um, I was opposed to the government because I was 16. So you're always opposed to the government when you're 16, aren't you? But do you think Which is presumably why Keir Starmer thinks it's a good idea now to give... 16-year-olds the vote and might not think it's such a good idea when he's been in government for five years. So you do think he'll win the next election. But do you... Um, <laughs> that was a conditional win. But are you saying then that had you been 16 under a Tory government, you could have been Labour? Maybe. I don't know. So yeah. it actually I mean, what shapes people's um, you know, political viewpoint when they're at that age, when they first start to become interested in politics? Um, and it's... Uh, you know, I would... I would think, if I think about the, um, you know, my political lifetime, I, I would say there is a trend of younger voters to gravitate to the party that's in opposition. So I don't, I don't think it's a given yeah. that younger people are always anti-Tory. I think if you've got a Labour government in office doing stuff that people don't like, um, you know, people will gravitate to the opposition. So why did you think you were a goth? What, he just got it completely wrong, or did you occasionally wear... I think you know, were you listening to sort of sad music? Yeah, it was probably that kind of thing, yeah. <laughs> so what sort of... I don't think you knew me that well. No, but we, it, like, if you were to categorise yourself as when you were at school at that age, if it was either sort of goth, as a, what the other cliché... I, I, think, I, think, I think he was out of time, you see. I think goths yeah, came later. Yeah. I think he's invented this, you know, later on, in, in, <laughs> retrospectively. Okay. But I the, think he was just wrong. But it's not like, you weren't like pre-goth, you weren't... <laughs> Probably, yeah. So you're into sort of like, I don't know, melancholic tunes? Yeah, Leonard Cohen, definitely Leonard Cohen. Okay, Cohen. yeah, so in a way he was kind of right. But Johnny Cash? Kind of. Leonard Cohen. Okay. Let's stick with <laughs> Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Heck of a ribbon. So, we've got time for a couple of questions. So if you indicate clearly, um, and if I can answer one sentence, questions one I sentence. I thought you just sentence. had a tape recorder going out there, actually. There are just some canned people. laughter yeah. for, the, uh, for the whole time. Um, but indicate clearly, and I'll try and... Um, we'll just yell at you. Oh, yes, down the front there. What was the most challenging cabinet position that you held? What was the most challenging cabinet position you held? Well, I think... Um, it, it was Chancellor, but because of the circumstances that we were in. So, you know, that was just a really very difficult period. Spending three years in heavily defensive mode, um, you know, you're dug in. I mean, I don't, I don't want to uh, 
draw a parallel with military activity too much, but you're dug in and you're trying to defend as much as you can of your territory. Um, you know the outcome ultimately is going to be um, suboptimal, at least I did, um, but you're trying to minimize the damage. And, and that's never really a, it doesn't feel heroic. It's not like you're charging forward, conquering the sunlit uplands, you know. And when Boris would say to me, you know, uh, be a bit more cheerful about the future, you know, talk about the good stuff, you know, all the great stuff we're going to do, great global Britain and forging ahead with the future. And that wasn't the way it was. We were fighting a rearguard action to try to limit the damage that um, people in his camp, frankly, um, were threatening to inflict on our economy with a, you know, a no-deal Brexit, a, a, a complete rift with the European Union, things that would have been catastrophic. You know, I was having to listen to, uh, you know, the CEOs of Japanese car companies who were telling us that, you know, all those jobs we just created and all that investment we just put into the North East and Derbyshire and Swindon, well, we'll be pulling it all out again if this happens in the way that some people are now suggesting. And there has to be a better way to do this. So it was a, it was a very challenging grind, if you like. Every day was, was, was um, you know, grinding away at trying to minimise the damage. And, and within, within the group, so within the cabinet, there was constant, you know, you, you were constantly tin hat on doing battle with your colleagues. It's not a very um, edifying situation to be in, to be honest. And do you think, actually, that when Boris Johnson says talk about the good stuff, in a way, in a sort of mad way, has he got a point? That actually, a bit of optimism might reassure investors and might make people feel better and might make you more likely to win an election. Sure. And, and um, with hindsight, the Remain campaign made a massive strategic mistake in the referendum in focusing on arguments of the head rather than arguments of the heart. So the, the, the Leave campaign had an identity politics agenda. The Remain campaign had a logical politics agenda. And what I've learned from that is that logic always loses out to identity. Uh, and unfortunately, I think we're still in that place in our politics. Um, uh, so yeah, it would have been better if those of us who were arguing for Britain to remain in the European Union, instead of using the threat of economic damage, had looked at the benefits, um, the ability you know, to make a stronger Europe that would project European culture and values more strongly in the world, would defend Britain's values more strongly in the world. But we tended not to. We tended to focus on the risks that we would be running and tended to focus on the economic arguments, perhaps because the Chancellor of the day was leading, uh, you know, leading the charge. OK, we've got time for one more question. So, I guess there's a hand right at the back there. Um, what's it like being caricatured in the papers by the cartoonists there? Great question. What's it like being caricatured in the papers by the cartoonists? Um, it, it's, a, it's really... Uh, OK, caricatured by cartoonists where they, um, you know, the caricaturist's art is to pick up on a physical feature and exaggerate it, of course. And, yeah, it's, it's offensive, isn't it? I mean, that's what it's meant to be. <laughs> it's offensive. Um, but in the end, it just becomes plain boring. What I find actually more uh, offensive 
is um, verbal uh, caricature, um, where column <laughs> columnists, <Okay. laughs> columnists, for example, uh, lampoon you um, by completely falsely attributing characteristics to you or, or, or habits or features to you, just make them up, you know. And I, I always found that more offensive than cartoons. Cartoons are quite funny. Once you've got over the shock of seeing yourself how others see you, um, you, you know, you just get used to it, you just live with it, and you recognise yourself. Oh yeah, that's me. Uh, and if you're not caricaturable, you're not recognisable. There's nothing worse than a political cartoon where you recognise, you know, oh, that's Theresa May, that's me. Ha, there's Boris. Who the hell's that? You know? Oh, it's him. He didn't have any features that they could exaggerate and emphasise. And did you, have you kept any of the cartoons of yourself? Um, not consciously, but I, I'm probably there are a few kicking around. So, so sometimes um, uh, cartoonists will send you a copy of something they've done, so... Yeah, probably got a few kicking around. Because I, I know some politicians will buy the original and have it in their house. So that's not the sort I of thought you were going to say buy the original and shred it so <laughs> no one can copy it. Or they own the rights to it or something. Yeah, sort of, a, I mean, sort of an odd way of humorously being egotistical. I've got, I've got two things at home um, framed, apart from photographs of, you know, with people and events. I've got um, uh, a, a cartoon that was done of me very early on in my political career when um, I stood in a by-election in 1994, which has got all the, ex ex all the caricature exaggeration you would expect, and the first time I think anybody had drawn me um, in earnest, I've got that one. Um, and I've also got, somebody did uh, in September 2019, I don't know if you've seen it, but somebody commissioned a Star Trek-style poster of the Tory 21 armed to the teeth, going into battle against the coup. Uh, and I've got that, uh, and that's going in the downstairs loop. We just, we've just finished refurbishing a house, so that is definitely going in the downstairs loop. Because the, the loo's an interesting place to put something, isn't it? Because it, it kind of means that everyone gets a bit of time to look at it. <laughs> Rather than just walking it. Depends what you're on. Well, of course, yeah, it depends where you place it in the loo, I guess. But... Um, are they the only? Th <laughs> sort of go down that. But, um, <laughs> so are they yeah, the only I'm, th I'm thinking that about that. Yeah. Mm. Do you not keep any of the cabinet pictures where you? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got the cabinet. Got the cabinet photographs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what was the happiest cabinet you were in? <laughs> oh, it was actually the first one. And I've got a great. I've got two photographs. Um, uh, I'll just share this with you. The Queen uh, came to attend the cabinet in twenty. Uh, it must have been 2011, I think, beginning of early 2011. It was the anniversary of something. Anyway, she came and she attended a what was a totally fake cabinet meeting <laughs> where, you know, David Cameron said, oh, yes, our agenda today is so-and-so, so-and-so, and read out three completely non-political and anodyne things that the Queen was able to nod at. Um, and then we went and had a photograph taken. And um, everyone sat there, the Queen in the middle, um, like stuffed shirts, you know, looking at the camera, and the camera woman was over there, one of those big old-fashioned cameras on a tripod, um, and took the picture, and immediately the photograph was taken. The Queen said, Good Lord, is that it? <laughs> and everybody burst out laughing. And then, of course, the photographer 
took a second picture immediately in which everybody is in disarray with their mouths open, laughing, except for the Queen, who'd sat there with her hands still on her knees with exactly the same expression she had in the first photograph. Obviously, the ultimate pro, knowing what was going to happen, and all the rest of us rank amateurs in our first year in government, caught out. And I've got the two photographs side by side on my study wall. In the ensuite toilet. No, on my study wall. <laughs> Philip, this has been absolutely sensational. It's been one of my favourite episodes, genuinely, and I've just been hanging. I'm going to check the podcast to see if he says that every time. Well, shut me under the bus, man. It doesn't mean I don't mean it. Because <laughs> I genuinely do. Philip, it really has been a very special evening, and I'm sure you'll agree. Ladies and gentlemen, a huge thank you to the amazing Philip Hammond. Well, there you go, Philip Hammond. You know what I love is sometimes it, it, watching a guest talk about a colleague or former colleague that either they didn't get on with or, or clearly, I, I wouldn't say don't respect, but I guess that's what I mean. Um, people navigate that in a different way. And I think Philip basically just got to the point. I mean, it was so funny just how we talked about, particularly Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, but you really get that sense and and this is something that I that always gives me a bit of hope in politics is whenever those of us on the outside are looking in, thinking what on earth is going on, surely some of them must realise they do. Now, whether they're in a position to stop the madness is a different question altogether, but there is something um, reassuring knowing that just as when the Labour Party was was in the wilderness and there were people there trying to bring it back to its sanity... Uh, the same was the case in the Tory party over the last few years. And just knowing that someone who'd been Chancellor was looking at what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng was doing with total horror. Um, well, it, it, you know, that gives you no comfort if your mortgage has gone up, but just politically knowing that even in the darkest days, there are still sensible people there who are trying to stop it, I think is a, a level of reassurance. Maybe I'm trying to convince myself, but Philip was just such a fantastic guest, really funny and um, so many brilliant stories. And it, it, you realise, and obviously this show showcases it, but politics attracts lots of different people. Now, on the face of it, you would say, oh, someone who went to Oxford and, and then becomes a cabinet minister, that's not that unusual. But actually, from his background in Essex, and also just the fact that he was like, well, I joined the Tory party when I was 16. You know, I'd have been born in a different year. Because that's something I often think is, would a lot of people, perhaps of Philip's generation, if they were born a little bit later, have been New Labour. Now, I don't think that's always necessarily the case because I don't think you should totally discount that people do have an ideological element to them. Um, but time plays such a big part, as it does for voters, obviously. Um, so that, that, I, when he said that, I thought, it's a, a thing I often think. So that was a um, that was a nice moment. Anyway, I'm not going to just <laughs> repeat everything that Philip said, but what a cracking interview. And I'll see you at the next one on Monday the 19th of June with my special guest, Margaret Beckett, and then on the 3rd of July with Joe Lysett, on the 17th of July with Mari Black, on the 18th of September with Dan Jarvis, and on the 2nd of October with Jason Williamson. My Edinburgh show, Inside Number 10, is now on sale. I'm at the Pleasance Courtyard from the 2nd to the 27th of August, if you're heading up there. Uh, Inside Number 10, a play on Inside Number 9, the League of Gentlemen uh, spin-off series. 
I'm not sure it's a spin-off, but it's done by the same people. Um, so you can, I'll put the link to that in there as well. And, of course, Spitting Image, the musical, uh, is now on sale, which I've co-written with Al-Marie and Sean Foley, and I provide some of the voices for, as you might have guessed. Um, so thank you to all of you who've already messaged me uh, about that. But if you'd like to go and see that at the Phoenix Theatre, I have put a link on. So there you go. Tickets galore. The hard sell stops now, and I'll see you next time. Ta-ra. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.